And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to take a look at a great new book, which could hardly be more timely than it is. The President of the United States, uh, Honorable Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., has uh, landed in Japan. He is meeting with our Japanese allies. And... Uh, honest to God, when you look around the world right now, it is one of those areas for thanks to God that Japan is such a strong ally of the United States. Can you imagine what our situation would be like without uh, the alliance with the Japanese? And yet it was not that long ago that one of the most devastating attacks in the entire history of warfare and all of human history was the attack perpetrated by the United States and by our president, Harry S. Truman, on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. That was part of a journey. The journey uh, is described in Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. Uh, this is the work of Evan Thomas, who was the author of numerous best-selling books and he was uh, he was at many times for many years an editor at Time and at Newsweek and uh, the book reads like a thriller about some of the most uh, substantial influential important events of our time or actually you could say of the generation before Evan congratulations on Road to Surrender Thank you, Michael. Uh, the, the book is about three people, and there are two uh, prominent Americans and a prominent leader of Japan who I, I really didn't know anything about. Uh, the Japanese leader uh, who you write about is the foreign minister, Shigenori Togo. And uh, he was the only one of the Imperial Council, the one of the people around Emperor Hirohito, who was an advocate of peace. Uh, why were the rest of the Japanese hierarchy, uh, including to some extent the Emperor himself, uh, so insistent that they hadn't yet lost the war and wanting to fight on? without end. Well, you, at one level, there was a kind of crazy death wish. Uh, the Japanese had headlines that would say, <clears throat> the 100 million, that's the population of Japan, the 100 million will die for the emperor. For the emperor. There was a, a, almost a cult love of, of suicide. So that's at one level. But more practically, more politically, what they wanted to do was to make America bleed so much that the United States would give them good terms for surrender. What were good terms? No occupation, no war crimes, because, of course, all the Japanese leadership would be implicated in war crimes, and keep the emperor. And those are the terms they wanted. The Americans didn't want to give them those terms. They wanted unconditional surrender. They were afraid that if they let the Japanese militarists keep control, they'd, we'd be fighting World War III. So... Uh, 
that's an impasse. The Japanese will not surrender, even though they are basically defeated. And the Americans don't want to just give them what they want. What are you going to do? What we did was drop two atom bombs. And the atom bombs eventually did end the war. But one of the fascinating things about your book, Road to Surrender, it's posted up at our website at uh, michaelmedved.com, is that even after the bombing at Hiroshima, where there was such devastating destruction, even after the bombing at Nagasaki, there were still uh, many Japanese who were willing and determined to fight on. And one of the things you write about in the book is they had stored up and trained literally thousands of kamikazes who could have devastated the U.S. Navy. They had 7,000 kamikaze planes hidden in caves. Most of them could take off and not land. The pilots could barely take off. But it would have been enough to wreak unbelievable havoc on an American invasion fleet. You know, we, you know, most people are familiar with Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And, uh, it took us five weeks and 7,000 men to take uh, Iwo Jima. That's an island the size of Nantucket. And it took, you know, a couple of months and 12,000 men to take Okinawa. If we'd had to invade Japan, the death toll would have been unclear, but in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and that's what the Japanese were hoping for, that we would suffer so much. They had to work for it. Shiketsu, bleeding strategy, bleeding strategy, to bleed us so much that we would give up and give them what they wanted. The only thing that changed that equation for these nuclear weapons, a very high moral price to pay, to put it mildly, but the Japanese were just dug in. And as you mentioned, even after, after we had dropped two of these bombs, there was a meeting of the Supreme War Council, and the war minister, Anami, the, the top guy, really the most powerful guy in Japan, says, wouldn't it be beautiful for the whole nation to die as a beautiful flower? Let them drop 100 atom bombs on us. Just nuts. Now, he's posturing, but, you know, it, it just, the Japanese were dug in and my, are the hero, in a way, of the book of somebody you've never heard of, Shigenori Togo, who's the one civilian on the, in this group and the one, if you will, sane person who wants to save his own country by surrendering. And he plots and conspires and finally brings the emperor around him. Emperors are somewhat... Funny figure, he's divine. He reports only to the gods, but really, he he's dependent on the military. That's where his power comes from. And he's very wary of crossing the military because they could they might change him. They might swap him out for another member of his family. Uh, he, they, the military wants to take him up to their secret hideout up in the mountains. He's afraid, but he's actually more afraid of an atom bomb landing on him. He's worried that the the next target will be Tokyo. This, this is all such fascinating and important stuff. Two questions that may be uncomfortable. Uh, one of them is that if you look at our alliance with Japan, which has become such a keystone of American foreign policy, could we have ever gotten as close to Japan as we are if their defeat had been less unequivocal? if we had agreed to some of their terms, if we had negotiated a peace without dropping the atom bomb, 
uh, would there have been the closeness between America and Japan there is today? I mean, weirdly, by 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 killing all those Japanese, and we killed a couple hundred thousand in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we actually saved millions more who we would have either burned or starved to death uh, in, in in a prolonged war. I know that's a perverse logic, but but that's true. And the other thing is the Japanese. They're a hierarchical country, and when we when they finally did surrender after fighting us to the death, they were they were humble, uh, humbled by us. They their troops would bow as we drove by, and we smartly smartly preserved the emperor, so they would have figures still to worship. The real power was General MacArthur, our general. But it, it, was a, it, it was a strange scene where we had this kind of imperial power over them. But we rebuilt Japan. We fought them. They were starving to death, and we fed them. Can, can uh, you stay for a few more moments? I have one particular question about American leadership I'd love to explore with Evan Thomas, a New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Road to Surrender, Three Men, and the countdown to the end of World War II. Uh, we'll be right back with Evan Thomas coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America, this is The Michael Medved Show. Uh, Road to Surrender, uh, the subtitle, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. And as people know, the end of World War II involved the American bombings first at Hiroshima and then with the Japanese still determined to fight on, uh, then at Nagasaki. And one of the stories that uh, Evan Thomas tells in the book is that uh, actually... Uh, though it worked to end the war, the bombing at Nagasaki was off target, and that probably saved thousands of lives. In fact, both attacks together saved thousands of Japanese lives uh, from being uh, uh, the estimates. The estimates of, of uh, invading the home islands involved at least a million Japanese casualties, did they not? Yes, I mean these are these are hard to know for sure, but a, a an assault by a million Americans on a million Japanese, and then a Japanese home army of 28 million people. When you have 7,000 kamikaze planes, you know you can imagine the carnage uh, uh, beyond anything the world had ever seen before in history. Um, in terms of the leadership, the the. The people that you profile in the book, uh, you profile Secretary of War uh, Henry L. Stimson, who was a former Secretary of State. He had been Secretary of State for Herbert Hoover, a Republican. Stimson was a lifelong Republican, brought on to Roosevelt's Unity Cabinet to do a superb job uh, during the war. But uh, also General Carl Tui Spatz, who was head of strategic bombing in the Pacific, these guys, as you depict them, uh, were all torn 
about the whole idea of using the atom bombs we had developed. And they were not cold-blooded warriors. Stimson couldn't sleep, the Secretary of War. He, in his diary, he referred to the bomb as the awful, the terrible, the diabolical. He knew what it was, but they had, he felt, and I think history has proved him out, that they had no choice. Tui Spatz, you mentioned, did strategic bombing first in Europe, where we killed a lot of civilians and, and, and soldiers as well, and then was brought to the Pacific. He wrote in his diary, this is the guy who was given the order to drop the atom bomb, he wrote in his diary that he was against it. But he was finally convinced that it would save more lives than it would cost. That's a very grim calculus since it cost 200,000 lives. He said, as Spot said, look, if I'm going to, he was given a verbal order to drop the bomb. And he said, if I'm going to kill 100,000 people, I want to see it in writing. And he kept the order in his back pocket. He lost it briefly when his his pants went to the cleaners. <laughs> he lost the order. But, you know, these guys, the point is they're not cold-blooded at all. They really agonize. And to his death, to his spots, uh, his granddaughter told me he would he couldn't sleep. He would wander around the house moaning. And he confessed to her at the end of his life that he felt guilty about it. Yeah, of course he did. Of course he did. It, when you look at the people who inhabit your book, and, and very much it was President Harry Truman who made the final decision, and uh, uh, which is clearly one of the most agonizing decisions any American president has ever had to make, and uh, you look at General George C. Marshall, uh, <laughs> you look at General MacArthur, who supervised the American occupation of Japan, uh, and then people like Stimson and General Spots. Uh, okay, and then you look at the people we have leading our country at the moment. Um, we we have a presidential election where there's not a lot of uh, excitement or confidence in a, a Trump uh, Biden choice. Do you do you believe is that just nostalgia talking, or is there a historical basis for believing? that people like Truman and FDR and Stimson, Wendell Wilkie, uh, the, the figures, George C. Marshall, for goodness sake, that the, the people who were leading the country in 1945 were a cut above. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a cliche to say, you know, they were giants then, and, but they were giants then. That, that's true. Our, our, you know, it's a cultural thing, partly. Uh, they lived in an age when there was no Internet and no cable TV, and they, these men were not show-offs. Uh, FDR knew how to give a good radio address, but their culture rewarded people who uh, were humble or tried to be humble, were not, the modern word is performative. They weren't performative. They weren't, they weren't show-offs. They believed in getting things done. They also had a very strong sense of moral ambiguity. They didn't go around saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, today, if you on Twitter, I'm right, you're wrong. My group is right, your group is wrong. That, that's something. That's the culture we live in today. It was different back then. They had a, a greater sense of tragedy and a greater sense of moral ambiguity, and it enabled them to make these 5149 choices at great cost. They also knew you had to compromise. I mean, the FDR, as you mentioned, Stimson was a Republican. 
FDR brings in, was a Democrat for sure, brings in a leading Republican to be his Secretary of War. And he brings in a Republican, Frank Knox, to be his Secretary of the Navy. Partly it's political to get stuff through Congress. But the point is they're willing to compromise to get things done. What happened to Shigenori Togo, the Japanese foreign minister who comes across as almost heroic in his lonely and potentially very dangerous for him as he had to risk his life effort to get the emperor and his country to make peace? Well, incredibly, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison as a war criminal. We should have given him a medal. He saved millions of lives, American lives and Japanese lives. But when that post-war feeling was, well, we've got to, you know, we've got to, we, 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 have, we have to punish them. And he had been in the cabinet at Pearl Harbor, and that was good enough to punish him. So he died in prison. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Uh, the, the, the book is stirring to read. And it provides a very useful perspective on leadership and American greatness and providence. Uh, the book is called Road to Surrender, and uh, the uh, subtitle, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. The author, Evan Thomas, former editor of Newsweek and of Time magazine and author of many previous bestsellers. Godspeed to you, sir, and congratulations on a great piece of work. We will be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, we have not yet... Uh, defined the issues that are going to decide the elections of 2024. We haven't decided the candidates. It is still a wide open field. Right now, a lot of attention on Governor Ron DeSantis. He's on the cover of Time magazine. He's going to be announcing his candidacy apparently next week. He has signed a bunch of bills. But uh, regardless of who the Democrats nominate, and it, it seems extraordinarily obvious that pending some kind of unforeseen disaster, that it will be Joe Biden. One of the things that is painful to watch right now is uh, the attempt by Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is 89 years old. She's... Um, I, I, considerably older than the president of the United States, but her situation raises the, the same questions. Uh, she is going through uh, a, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. She had shingles. She is coming back, and when you look at the symptoms that she is suffering from, I, I mean – when you have a Senate where the uh, they would have to appoint uh, Governor Newsom gets the appointment if she resigns and someone comes in to take the rest of her term, which seems to be the obvious situation. But unfortunately, every time she's on screen, 
it raises that issue of Biden's health and what's going to happen uh, because he is he's not 89 as she is. Now, one of the uh, Democrats who is um, most involved with the reparations movement which is uh, a very big deal in California. And when you talk about the possibility of Gavin Newsom running for president, or you talk generally about the Democrats trying to field a competitive ticket uh, in 2024, the idea of paying $14 trillion in reparations would destroy any competitiveness in this election. Uh, the polling is incredibly negative when you talk about <laughs> this this level of money right now. And as a priority for the United States of America in the year 2024, really? Uh, Cori Bush, the uh, congresswoman from Missouri, has just introduced a bill uh, calling for that $14 trillion in slavery reparations. And uh, here is what she sounded like in introducing this legislation, which uh, could be a suicide package for Democrats. Uh, this is Congresswoman Cori Bush, clip 16. United States has a moral and legal obligation to provide reparations for the enslavement of Africans, black people in our country cannot wait any longer for our government to begin a, a addressing each and every one of the extraordinary bits of harm, all of the harm it has caused since the founding. Okay. Um, again, the story of black Americans in America is one of the reasons people need to know black history and why it's important has, yes, involved terrible cruelty and terrible harm, but it hasn't only been that. It's not one-dimensional. And if you look at the success and the contributions and the achievements of black Americans going back to way before the end of slavery, the, uh, the notion that, uh, and the notion that, that you're going to make that right by giving people who live today uh, more than one million dollars each which is what they're talking about in california they asked uh, hakeem jeffries about corey bush's plan for 14 trillion dollars in reparations that's fourteen thousand billion dollars i mean we're talking about such an extraordinary financial commitment uh then uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is the leader of the Democrats in the House, he wants to be Speaker. I, I think the Democrats have probably small chance of taking over the House in the upcoming elections, but we'll see. But Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from New York and Democratic leader of the House, had this to say about uh, the proposal. This is clip seven. Why do you think so many people on the right oppose the call for reparations? Well, I haven't taken a look at the bill that Representative Bush introduced, so I can't comment on its merits up or down. Uh, but we know, generally, 
that the American people want to see opportunity created in every single zip code. That's my objective uh, in this position that I'm privileged to hold. We want to uplift everyone and, of course, make sure that we deal with injustice, whether that's racial injustice, social injustice, or economic injustice, wherever it's found. Okay, that is uh, extremely deft and very well said. And he's right. The American people do want to create opportunity. But if you look at the Jeffries family, he has brothers and uncles and aunts. They've been a very successful family. And they have made the most of the opportunities that have been held out to them. And the idea that the reparations and the push for reparations, when uh, she he was asked a question, why do you think that there's so many white people and he could have also added at that point, there are also so many black people who doubt the idea of uh, reparations. Um, uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, uh, Politico is reporting that uh, the indescribable uh, representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has said today that she's going to introduce brand new articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. She's done several articles of impeachment before. The Georgia Republican said the articles would deal with Biden's handling of border security, accusing him of an absolute failure to protect the states. Okay, it's not failure that you get impeached for. It's high crimes and misdemeanors. Here is what she had to say. Out of solemnity that I announce my intention to introduce articles of impeachment today on the head of this America at last executive branch that has been working since January 20th, 2021 to systematically destroy this country. The president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. Joe Biden has deliberately compromised our national security by refusing to enforce immigration laws and secure our border allowed approximately 6 million illegals from over 170 countries to invade our country, deprive Border Patrol of the necessary resources and policies sufficient to protect our country. Okay, the uh, figure of 6 million invaders is, is not a figure that, that even people who are righteously and appropriately concerned about border security uh, would go with. And the whole idea of impeachment is it's stated, it's, it's, uh, it's, you get impeached if you're a president of the United States for treason or high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, the, the whole reason that, that President uh, Trump's impeachments failed is because they didn't meet the standard which is a very high standard, and it's deliberately set up that way. And um, between Marjorie Taylor Greene, wouldn't you like to see Marjorie Taylor Greene sit down in a room with Cori Bush? Maybe they can cut some kind of compromise or something. Uh, meanwhile, a, uh, a $38 million, well, $38,100,000 for a book? Which one? We'll tell you.
Michael Ledbet Show concerning our prior discussion with uh, Evan Thomas about his new book, Road to Surrender. Uh, an email came in from Scott who said, Now consider, as we became such friends with the Japanese, how conservatives, Republicans in America, may become such friends with the liberals, Democrats in America. The two are not the same. Domestic tranquility there is a path. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, but I don't think that that path requires the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, uh, achieving some kind of domestic tranquility, but it does uh, require some perspective. There's a Politico reporting um, that that uh, view from the White House. Politico writes, is there a bigger example of a shameless sideshow political stunt than a trolling impeachment attack by one of the most extreme MAGA members in Congress, that would be Marjorie Taylor Greene, over national security while she actively demands to defund the FBI and even said she would have been armed and would have won the January 6th insurrection, if only she'd been in charge of it. That's uh, what uh, a, actually, a White House spokesperson said was quoted in Politico. That it was Ian Sams of the White House. Yes, remember Marjorie Taylor Greene said that she would have been carrying weapons and would have won the January 6th insurrection? What would that have looked like? Wonder if somebody can could do a a what if novel on that. Uh, there will be no immediate vote on the Biden impeachment. By the way, uh, the Politico is reporting impeaching Biden doesn't have the votes within the House GOP conference to pass, but Green could offer her impeachment resolution on the floor as a question of the privilege of the House, which would allow her to force a vote related to the resolution within a matter of days. Uh, Green, however, said she was not going to go down that road for now, saying that she wanted to build up co-sponsors and support for impeachment. Uh, MSNBC is reporting, at last count, a variety of Republican members of Congress have recently endorsed impeaching President Joe Biden and, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris, because what's the point of <laughs> impeaching Biden that's just going to make Kamala president, right? And Vice President Kamala Harris and several members of the White House cabinet, including Attorney General Merrick Garland, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, and Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona. Why'd they leave out Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce? I mean, there, there are others they could go after, uh, did I mention, they say on MSNBC, FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was originally appointed by Donald Trump and confirmed by Senate Republicans because apparently some in the GOP are ready to impeach him too. It was against this backdrop that the list got just a little bit longer yesterday. The Hill reported, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said Tuesday that she will move to introduce articles of impeachment against FBI Director Christopher Wray and Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. 
To be sure, Ray was already on the list, so the fact that the right-wing Georgian intends to pursue the FBI director over assorted conspiracy theories isn't uh, such a surprise. Uh, look, there's some things that are noteworthy, even if they're not entirely surprising. Uh, there is this story, uh, Hebrew Bible, seen as historic, is auctioned for $38.1 million. The volume known as the Codex Sassoon includes all 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, minus about eight leaves, that would be eight pages of parchment, uh, including the first 10 chapters of Genesis. They're not there. But researchers have dated this, this ancient and very valuable Bible to the early 10th century, that's the 900s, making it the oldest near-complete Hebrew Bible known to exist. The, uh, shortly after the auction, Sotheby's announced that the buyer was the American Friends of ANU, that's the Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv, and was made possible by a donation from Alfred H. Moses, a former ambassador to Romania, and his family. The Codex Sassoon um, will be donated to the museum, previously known as the Museum of the Jewish D Diaspora. It's a, a beautiful museum and is about the, all the Jewish history that has taken place outside of the land of Israel. And uh, it will be part of the core permanent collection and exhibition for the uh, the. Uh, museum, the Museum of the Jewish People. Quote, the Hebrew Bible is the most influential in history and uh, constitutes the bedrock of Western civilization, Mr. Moses said in a statement. I rejoice in knowing that it belongs to the Jewish people. It was my mission, realizing the historic significance of Codex Sassoon, to see it reside in a place with global access to all people of all faiths. The Codex Sassoon had last been sold at auction in 1989 for $3 million, uh, nearly $8 million in today's dollars, to a dealer who subsequently sold it uh, to Safra for an unknown price. Even in its own time, the book was an expensive object, requiring the skins of easily more than 100 animals to create its roughly 400 parchment leaves. The text was handwritten, of course, by a single scribe. It's a masterpiece of scribal art, Sharon Lieberman Mintz, so to be senior consultant for Judaica, told the New York Times in February. It's also a slightly worn one. It's marked by stains and small tears, which have been carefully mended with thread or sinew, but the text remains remarkably legible, written out in the square lettering similar to those in Torah scrolls in synagogues around the world today. The Bible, one of only two complete or substantially complete Hebrew Bibles of the period known to survive, was made in present-day Israel or Syria. They're not sure. The uh, book also includes several inscriptions tracing changes in ownership across the centuries. The earliest is a deed of sale from around 1000 A.D., indicating that it was sold by Khalaf ben Avraham, a businessman who worked in uh, Israel and Syria 
to Isaac ben Ezekiel el Atar, who ultimately gave it to his sons. Another inscription notes that almost 200 years later, it was dedicated to the synagogue in the city of Makisin in northeast Syria. After the synagogue was destroyed, it was entrusted to a man named Salama Aben el Fakhr, who was to return it when the synagogue was rebuilt. That synagogue has not been rebuilt, but we will keep in, in touch with that development. Um, meanwhile, uh, there is a specific information about the DeSantis candidacy. Uh, they're reporting at Hotline that Ron DeSantis will officially enter the race for president next week as his campaign donors begin a fundraising blitz. DeSantis' expected entry into the race will coincide with a donor meeting in Miami on May 25th, and it will put him in direct competition with former President Trump, with whom he has already been sparring for months. DeSantis will file the FEC paperwork uh, before potentially hosting a more formal launch event. Uh, never back down the super PAC, which is backing DeSantis' shadow presidential run, announced that 99 of the 113 Florida Republican legislators are endorsing the governor, which is pretty good. And uh, again, the Trump uh, team had been saying that they would be more likely to get the Florida support than DeSantis, but it's not true. 99 of 113 Republican legislators are endorsing the governor. State Senator John Gruder's is the only one who is currently backing Trump. The uh, former president's campaign yesterday accused DeSantis and his team of putting undue pressure on state lawmakers to endorse the governor by threatening to veto legislation unless they get behind him. This is going to get serious. Uh, we have a serious problem in America, too, with a rising death rate for our children. What are we going to do about it? We'll be speaking to Gene Twenge about the role of social media in all of this and more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.